welcome to Knock On Podcast, where we bring you archery information and education that you can trust. Knock On was created as a way to bring all archers together, regardless of the brand you choose or the style of archery you shoot. Knock On Podcasting will deliver professional insights to the latest gear, proper shooting technique, along with high-level equipment setup and tuning. Hello again, archery-aholics and bow hunting fanatics or whoever else you are that's listening to the podcast got a pretty cool list of topics today i'm actually trying to still wrap up the barrage of topics that i got hit with by all of you during uh my last public questioning of what you wanted to hear so i've got uh about half a page here left of some of those questions and I've also dealt with a few other really good ones here in the last few days so I'm going to jump on some of those subjects as well uh, just to give you a little recap of the last week for me anyway I was actually out at uh, North Carolina Dixie Deer Classic really cool event I was not at the Iowa Deer Classic so sorry to all my Iowa natives that I didn't get to see uh, however I had a good friend call in a favor and asked if I would go out to the Dixie Deer Classic and uh, do some educational seminars out there relating to archery and that sort of thing and had uh, had some really good crowds and got to meet some really good people and always excited to go out and do a seminar and have people that are there that uh, are familiar with the things that I'm doing and uh, regular listeners to the podcast and uh, met a lot of people afterwards that asked some really cool questions and hopefully I helped you out so that was really really fun uh, getting pretty close to turkey season here I'm kind of starting to rub my hands and get excited I'm kind of always in limbo during this time of year because Right now the weather is getting really good and I really want to be shooting my outdoor bow, but I also want to be getting ready for turkey season. So I'm kind of stuck right in that in-between. And I guess actually that reminds me, uh, I just got the latest Peterson's Bow Hunting Magazine and the April-May issue it's all about turkey hunting and I got another feature article in there um, tagging out on turkeys so essential bow tactics for essential turkey tactics for bow hunters that's what they they called it and then I've also got uh, a pretty cool turkey shot placement guide that's in the magazine and actually I'm working on a little video for those guys for their uh, website that's going to have some real life footage and showing you exactly uh, where to aim, where to shoot. And because I've been in the turkey mood, I actually posted some turkey videos here recently and I got quite a bit of attention. Uh, I put out a, a long range shot that I actually made. I can't even remember when it was. It it may have been eight or nine years ago now because I was shooting the Alpha Max, I believe. Um, shot a bird that had kind of hung up way outside of the decoys and uh, made an extremely long shot on the bird. Felt confident about it. 
Um, definitely got some some hate for that, but also a lot of the people appreciated it. And you know, the reality is, uh, me and my good buddy Eric that uh, I was hunting with during that trip. You know, we were only turkey hunting in the mornings and evenings, so uh, during the day we were doing a ton of shooting, and I was actually out there for a seminar, so we were doing a lot of 100-yard shots and stuff, so it kind of just seemed like it was meant to be when that bird froze up out there and was kind of strutting around back and forth, and I let him have it. And then uh, also posted another uh, video on my social sites and YouTube sites with... Uh, a big tom that I shot, I think it was in Nebraska, and uh, he kind of did the the death flop, and everybody really liked that, so then I kind of decided to put together a little montage of three different turkey fatalities, uh, kind of put some names to them, so maybe this turkey season, uh, some people do some hashtagging with flopping flipping dropping and chopping so be pretty cool to see as it as it comes out so maybe uh maybe what we should do is if you film if you film your turkey or if you shoot a big bird uh go ahead and hashtag whatever type of uh acrobatics your turkey pulls off uh let's just let's just make it official now let's do uh hashtag knock chop hashtag knock drop hashtag knock flip or hashtag uh forgot what the first one was but you get the if you watch the videos you'll know what i'm saying so uh, i look forward to that coming up here so i'm going to jump into some of these questions here um first question is going to be from scott Harmon, and he says uh john when i'm at full draw my grip puts the bow at a slight cant towards the right. Um, I have to adjust my grip to get the bubble back level. I would rather not use a sidebar for hunting, but I don't think I don't know how to get my bow to naturally set level at full draw. Do you have any questions? So, or do you have any uh, suggestions? So, you know, there's a couple things here, Scott. One. If you're using your hunting bow and you have a quiver loaded full of arrows, it might want to do that. You know, that's just going to be natural. You've got more weight on that side of the bow. So if that's the case, then obviously um, you've got a couple options there. One, you can start shooting without a quiver. It'll help it. Uh, you could also use kind of an offset bar that allows your stabilizer to be off to the side your left side of your bow the other thing you can do is if you set your sight up correctly um, meaning you first level your second axis and then you level your third axis which i actually put a video out on on properly leveling your bow on the knock on archer youtube site um, so if you properly le level your second axis and your third axis, then you can actually adjust your sight. As long as you've got a decent hunting sight, you can actually adjust your sight to where you can move that sight to where your cant is compensated for. 
And essentially, when you pull back, your bow will still have a slight lean in it. However, your bubble will read perfectly level. And whether you're shooting uphill or downhill, you'll still have your arrow track down the center, even though you have that slight lean. Um, but again, it's going to be critical that your second and third axis are set properly before you adjust that cant. Um, most sites allow you to adjust that, that housing to compensate for a natural cant. Um, and as long as you have the second and third axis done correctly, then you can make that happen. The other thing I want to just touch on, though, Scott, is, you know, a lot of people kind of get in the habit of trying to shoot you know if you if you take your bow hand and you just raise it up in the air towards your side you know your thumb is going to be at a natural angle if you do it by simply raising it up your thumb should be at about a 45 degree angle and that's actually right where you want it now if you use muscles and you turn your thumb up you know, some people do that, and that's getting too deep into the bow grip. They're actually turning the opposite side of their palm across the bow grip, and that's actually a more common thing, mistake that people make, and something that I regularly have to fix with archers. And what that does is that will actually start to tip the limb, the top limb to the left, instead of like your bow, which I'm assuming you're right handed, tipping it to the right. And it's because as you turn your palm down and your thumb up, your thumb also starts to put pressure on that outside part of the riser, and it's going to push that riser to the left. So if you shoot with your thumb laid flatter than 45 degrees, say naturally you kind of turn your hand to where your index finger is kind of creeping up on the top edge of your riser shelf, if you're doing that, then you're actually starting to apply pressure the exact opposite of what I just said, and that can cause a problem. So when I teach people to grip their bow, I talk to them and tell them to actually look down at their bow grip when your bow is kind of down by your side, tell your bow to stop, make sure your thumb is at that 45 degree angle, slide your hand up against the, the bottom part of that uh, riser shelf and then go ahead and lean down on the bow so that you have even pressure from the pocket of your thumb there all the way down to the main pad part of your thumb you want to have even pressure and if you have that then you shouldn't you shouldn't have to deal with as much canting to the right is what you're describing. The only other thing is, again, having a sight that's really heavy on the right side of your bow or having your quiver on the right side will definitely cause that to happen. And you may have to compensate if that's how you want to shoot. Uh, next question here is going to be from uh, John Keller. Jonathan, actually. Uh, hey, John, was watching some of your videos and had a question about your sight. Um, I personally use an HHA single pin and I've grown fond of single pins, but don't understand how you said you adjust the yardage on your Sherlock site. Can you enlighten me? So on my Sherlock site, I actually shoot an older, a little bit older model, but they have newer models now um, that are 
that are still multi-pin units that also adjust up or down. So what I do is I always center the housing, the outside edge of the housing of my site perfectly with the outside edge of my peep. So I make a perfect eclipse. And then I utilize my last pin, my lower pin, and I'll adjust the site further down, the whole site further down with my Sherlock, either my Sherlock Supreme or a Sherlock Lethal Weapon Max. I'll adjust that whole thing down and continue to use my bottom pin and I'll actually make a scale to where when I'm using my bottom pin I have everything from 50 yards out to about 130 yards is what I can clear. Um, I like to have a scope housing that allows me to use a certain size peep. Um, if I think I might have talked about this on the last podcast. I can't really remember, but if I'm shooting in situations where um, I might need a slightly bigger peep just because I'm going to be in a blind a lot or in a darker situation a lot, then I may shoot a five pin housing simply because, or six pin housing simply because I need that bigger peep site. And again, I want to have a perfect eclipse. I don't like having daylight around the outer edge of my scope. The reality is the smaller the peep site that you shoot, the more accurate you will be. I mean, it's literally just necking down your sight picture. And, you know, it's a lot like on a target rifle. You know, if you ever look at like an older military target rifle or sharpshooter rifle, you know, where they had a front post on the front of the rifle and then in the back they had a small circle the smaller that circle was, the more accurate you could be because you're left to right and you're up and down. Obviously, you have less margin to move around before you're not even seeing that in that small little aperture. So, you know, that smaller peep sometimes can really, really help accuracy. So if you're going to focus on a lot of long range shooting with your single pin, you know, I would encourage you to make sure that you shoot a pin that allows you to have that perfect eclipse now sometimes if i know i'm going to be doing a lot of western hunting um or spot and stock style hunting and i know that uh you know i'll be in the open i don't have to really worry about shooting out of a blind or out of a lot of thick cover in a tree stand then i'll normally shoot like a four pin site housing which that allows me to shoot just a little bit smaller peep site and i can really increase my accuracy a lot of times when you've seen me shooting some of my bows uh, that have, you know, the ability to shoot well over 100 yards, which I've posted several uh, videos of that, um, I'm normally shooting that smaller housing with four pins and just using my bottom pin uh, because I can use that smaller peat. Uh, next question here is going to be from... Wes Isaac, and actually before I move on to Wes's question, you know, a lot of people are shooting single pin sights now, and it is nice. My wife and my boy both hunt with single pin sights, and I will say, you know, from a target archery point of view, when I want to be my most accurate, I shoot a single pin sight. Um, shooting multi-pin sights, you know, I've shot the same ones for so long, and like I've said in the past, 
I normally like to choose an arrow weight that allows me to maintain my speed about the same because these sights that I have, since I'm always shooting within one or two feet per second from my bow of last year, my pins, my gaps uh, have always stayed almost identical. You know, a lot of times my longer yardages that I have to use, uh, how that I have to actually print a sight tape for, um, those I'll end up having to fine tune, but my 20, 30, 40, 50, they're almost always dead on. Um, so I've shot with that same pin gap for so long that I really have a good understanding of, you know, if something comes in and it's 34 yards, exactly, you know, where I need to hold my 30 pin or where I should hold my 40 pin, for example. Um, one, actually a question that I had, um, recently was someone asked me, you know, if I want my pin gaps to get smaller, um, what should I do if I can't change the speed of my bow? And if you want your pin gaps to get smaller, then you have to bring your whole sight apparatus closer to the bow. You know, a lot of people that want to really fine-tune their yardage, they extend that sight way out in front of the bow. It allows you to be much more precise because it's almost like a magnifying glass. The further out you push that sight away from the bow, it's almost like putting a magnifying glass on your scale. It's going to make your scale bigger and longer. The closer you bring it to the bow, the tighter those pins are going to come together. So, you know, for me, I, at my draw length, my eye to my front peep or my front pins is almost 33 inches. It's extremely long. So I already have a fairly big pin gap compared to someone that's like a, you know, a 29 inch shooter or a 29 inch draw length because their peep to pin, uh, focal point will be much much shorter but you know the thing is there is a trade-off there because some shorter draw length people uh, shoot slower speeds simply because they don't have the draw length so their pins may be tighter at a certain distance but then they open up at a faster rate just simply because they're shooting slower so hopefully that answers your question buddy uh, next question here is from Wes Isaac uh, he's asking, what's the best string material? I'm wanting to order some winner's choice strings, but the options are overwhelming. And hey, man, I can definitely sympathize with you on this. Um, there certainly is uh, a, an a overwhelming abundance of string options, serving options, diameters, materials, blends, etc. And honestly... The best material that I've, well, I guess let's go back. So most of the materials right now, the string materials, you know, regardless of what, you know, whether it's a 452, a 450X, you know, it's 8190 or, you know, an 8190X or, or whatever the string material is, they're mainly going to be blended with two things that are most important. They're either going to be blended with a Dyneema fiber or a Vectran. So Vectran is not going to have any type of stretch. Um, 
the characteristics of it is it's extremely strong. It doesn't have much give, but just like with anything, you know, you can think of it no different than the types of glue that you use on your on your arrows. If it's a fast curing hard material, it's more likely to become abrasive and crack or break. Um, so a lot of times if people that are shooting like a pure 450 or a pure Vectran type string, you'll see that they get fuzzier a lot faster. A lot of times they don't have to shoot as many strands because obviously they it's it's very strong. However, it does fuzz up, it does wear, and it does require more maintenance. Um, on the other material is going to be it. Well, it used to be Spectra. Spectra was kind of the original go-to material for like fast flight and stuff like that. Extremely fast, uh, but it does have give. It does stretch. You know, the original fast flight. Um, I remember we actually built we built strings out of pure Vectran, pure Spectra, pure Dyneema, and uh, we actually hung. Uh, 100 pound weights on them and almost five years later that fast flight was still just continually stretching right down that pole where the weights were hanging on the other ones you know the vectrans stretch um much faster but then stop and you know, like I said, that fast flight will just continually stretch almost for the life of it. It just keeps going. And then that Dyneema was kind of in between. It stretched at a faster rate than the Vectran, but then all of a sudden it slowed down and stopped. So um, that's when they started trying to make some of the blends. Like, you know, you look at like an 8190X or something, you know, you start to get um, slight blends to where you have the Dyneema that has longevity and will add life to the string, but then they also blend in enough Vectran to where that initial stretch is less. However, it's not going to fuzz up and start to crack. So with saying all that, there was a lot of testing done when Winner's Choice was first developed and, you know, Mike Slinkard um, was part of doing a lot of those initial testing and, and I, and I was part of a lot of that with him too. You know, they sent me a lot of different materials, a lot of different blends and certain ones definitely worked better in certain areas. Now, if you're a target archer and you plan on shooting your strings, for this amount you know this season and then you're going to move on to a new bow you're going to move on and replace it you need something that is going to that you absolutely don't have to worry about ever moving uh you want to shoot it in fast have it ready to go then you know uh a material that has more of that vectran in it like a 450x or something is going to be a great material for you however if you're a shooter that wants a string that's going to stay on the bow a while, you might have to shoot it 10 or 20 times to get it sighted in. And if by chance 
you get into a situation where you leave that thing in a car or something like that and it gets really hot down the line, you might have to make a slight adjustment as that wax comes out of the string. However, I've found that for me, I still have all my sets made with 8190X. I really like that material. It's got a really good feel. It's not going to have near the vibration as a Vectran. And for me, I just like the durability. When I'm bow hunting and I'm dragging my bow through scrub brush or cedars or walking through switchgrass or whatever, I just don't like by the time I go to and from my stand the first day, my string's all fuzzed out. So that's my personal feeling on that. The other thing is when it comes to choosing your servings, there's a lot of options there too, a ton. And you have to be careful because there's some servings that are twisted a lot more than others. So if you use them on certain parts of your string, like for example, if you had if you have a center serving that's twisted a lot more, sometimes that'll affect how your peep rotates. Um you know, over the years, I've tried a ton of different types of servings. I personally have stuck with using, uh, I really like um, a halo type serving on my end servings because it's extremely durable. The wear on it is incredible. On my center serving, I really like to just stick with a braided center serving. Um it doesn't separate as much. It it really doesn't cause your peep sight to twist. If you have a bow that has some type of a string stop on it, I personally like to use like a 3D type serving there. You don't need something that's real heavy and you don't need something that's, that's going to move uh, when you take a lot of abuse to it. So, you know, that's what I prefer. Um, actually, if if you're, uh, I, I order all my strings one color, one solid way. Um, if you want to keep it really simple, um, hopefully doesn't get mad. I always call winner's choice. I always talk to Brandon. He's been there a long time and I just tell him to, to make me some of my knock on strings. They come all flow green. He knows how to build them exactly how I like, and they continue to work really, really well. So if you want to keep it simple, you can uh, call Brandon, even though he's probably not the one that should be taking the calls, and order yourself up some. So, hope that helps you out, buddy. Um, the next question here is um, actually comes from, I didn't write the guy's name, but he actually sent me some photos of two different Hoyt pockets from Carbon Defiance. And I touched on this last time. Um, he actually is asking me in a roundabout way about whether or not they've changed the limb pockets again. I think because bows are late, people are really on this subject of the bows are not getting to them on time because they're changing things. And he sent me a picture of two different limb pockets, and he pretty much says was just wondering if you like your new Carbon Defiant better than your old one. And then says, uh, thanks for your commitment to archery education and great hunting shows. 
So the one picture that you sent, and he actually took two pictures that were that obviously were up on a forum somewhere where someone was saying, well, here's the one picture, you know, here's one limb pocket and here's another limb pocket on my buddies. Well, the two limb pockets in that forum, in that picture, one of the limb pocket systems or bridge systems is on a carbon defiant 31 and the other one's on a 34. So it's not even really a fair comparison because, you know, that whole pocket and arch system uh, where the riser comes off and goes back to the to the rocker, um, they are different. Obviously, the shorter ones will need um, just slightly different um, adjustability. But you know that's because a shorter bow is going to have a little bit more tension on it. You know, the bigger one it doesn't need quite the bracing. The other thing too, I want to encourage people to kind of accept the fact that when it comes to bow designs or any type of product okay i'm in the manufacture i've been a manufacturer or with the manufacturer for a long long time so i know that catalogs are deadlines usually you're scrambling to get a picture of a product in a catalog and then after that's done you're kind of scrambling to tell your sales team about the new product and then on top of that you're really really scrambling in order to actually get your product on out to the market so last year um, when we were taking a lot of the photographs uh, for the new Hoyt risers and stuff for the catalogs, you know, we're working off prototype bows, first, second, third generation prototypes that obviously the design department are already in the process of making slight tweaks from based off their R&D. However, you know, you're not able to go out and do a photo shoot two days before a catalog has to be printed and do a shoot, process photos, get everything right, then, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So some of the pictures in catalogs, they're not going to be production models. And I'll give you an example of this. Back when Matthews came out with the Matthews LX, that bow was originally not even, the cam was not even close to what the production model is. Uh, We actually had gone through prototypes for almost six months, built bows, everything was fine. We had a a concept um, and the the cam was actually originally the same two-track cam design as a Matthews Genesis. And this was before the Genesis ever came about. This was actually part of how the Genesis came to light. But after all that R&D and building bows, we finally made 20 bows to take to the ATA show. And at back then, I was actually driving the truck with the product down to the ATA. We were so late getting product ready that we were literally throwing product in the truck and we were there was a vehicle that would drive the product right down 
to the show and literally unbox those things the morning of the show. No one had an opportunity to see him in between. So that year, we were building the bows two days before we were driving to the ATA show. And once we started pulling those bows back to check them as we were building them in the bow department, some of the bows started making a god-awful snap sound. And it it happened to be that there was a certain part of, of where the machine cut the cam to where when the cable came around it actually clicked off this little track and it clicked and it was making this popping noise and we knew that if we went and every single bow that dealers were seeing for the first time and drawing back were making these clicking sounds that that wasn't going to fly so there was a mad scramble to try to figure out how to eliminate this clicking noise and it was amazing because like i said for six months we were shooting bows that were built that exact way never had a single problem but once we went into trying to manufacture them all of a sudden something slightly changed and that was happening so there was a mad scramble we ended up having to make another batch of cams they started doing the same thing so then in the end uh, Matt just kind of threw up his hands and said we're gonna I'm gonna totally make a new a totally different cam so he went back to a three track solo cam literally two days before we had to go to the show he cut cams he cut cam shades is back here barking at somebody so uh we cut cams then we took those cams and uh drove them to an anodizer let them anodize them drove them back to the factory Literally stayed up till midnight building the LXs with the three track cams, threw them in the truck, and me and my buddy Brandon drove straight to the show, literally the morning of pulling a bow out that had three tracks. And the catalogs had dual track cams. So you can't always go off what you see in the catalogs. That's the moral of the story. Um, I can't honestly say that I've had a major uh, change in any of the bows that I've had between the first Carbon Defiance and these. I just know, like I said in the last podcast, there's a huge amount of orders. They were waiting on material from what I've heard. The material's in. The new jigs and production uh fixtures are made and they're rolling so uh you know slight tweaks are always going to happen and they'll continue to happen um i know that you know there's been several years where companies will come out with the one thing and by a few months later there might be a slightly different uh change to that and you know that's going to happen but mine have shot the same i don't have any problems tuning them they're all shooting good So, um, for anyone out there that's causing, uh, crap in the forums, then, uh, take it for what it's worth. You know, some people are, some people just want to know everything and some people just, especially if they're not going to be a Hoyt fan, they're going to use it as an opportunity to stir the pot. And, uh, it's definitely not uncommon for a non Hoyt dealer to try to say everything he can so that they're not going to have to compete with their local Hoyt dealer on a cool product. Uh, And that goes for everybody. So uh, that's my little 
lesson of the day for all of you out there. And um, I guess I probably won't post those pictures of the pockets, but for those of you who are looking at that uh, thread or in those forums at the difference, just so you know, there is a difference between a 34 and a 31. So make sure you compare apples to apples. Alrighty, well the next question here is going to be from Charles Fiorillo, and uh, you've got a pretty long question here. Uh, question is, uh, I hope you can help me with this. I have always shot bows that are around 35 inches axle to axle. I just bought a Defiant, uh, aluminum Defiant at 30 and a half inches. I'm a 20 eight and a half inch draw length usually but with this bow the 28 and a half hits just at the corner of my mouth but not necessarily at the tip of my nose uh, the 29 inch hits the tip of my nose but goes past the corner of my mouth by about a half inch um, i can tip my head forward to hit the corner of my mouth and i can end the tip of my nose at 28 and a half but that affects my form um, is there anything that you can recommend? So uh, this brings up a pretty valid point because one thing that I coach is, um, you know, I have a very systematic routine that I like to teach people when it comes to shooting archery. And one of those things is acquiring their peep sight. And when you do that, you're doing it by adjusting your head position so that you're centering your peep and your sight. Um, what you'll find is... You know, when you're shooting a closer distance, you know, you might have to bear down on your string a little bit more because you're actually looking kind of up through your peep to see your sight up towards the top of your scale. And this is going to be more so for people that are shooting a single pin sight because since your sight starts up and then goes down the lower you shoot what you'll find is you know when you're kind of in the middle of that range you'll be able to look perfectly through that peep with very little pressure um, with your nose on the string however once you know if you're trying to look up towards the high end of that scale sometimes you have to put a, a little bit more facial pressure on the string or nose pressure on the string so that you can look up through there and then as it moves way down towards the bottom, you know, you almost feel like you don't have as much at all because you're trying to look through your peep, center your housing down towards the very bottom of that scale. But one thing that I do teach people is that when they are shooting, you want to have your head position in a vertical position. You want to pretend like someone's holding your little alfalfa part of your hair right in the center of your skull. And if someone had a hold of that, when you look towards the target, you want to turn your head towards the target without going forward to the string. Um, and if you can imagine someone holding that hair, if you're golden going forward to that string, you're going to actually pluck those hairs out. So that's an exercise that I do with a lot of my students if they have the habit of taking their face to the string or bending their head too far into the string. With some bows, if you have a longer draw length um, or if you're shooting a bow that is shorter axle to axle, you may find that your string might not be exactly at the corner of your mouth 
um, in order for that string to be right at the tip of your nose when your head is perfectly erect. You know, you might have to have it a little bit further back. And the shorter your axle-to-axle length and the smaller your, or the, uh, the tighter your string angle is at full draw, the more you're either going to have to tip your head forward or the further back that string's going to have to come on your face in order to properly touch the tip of your nose. So I would be more comfortable with you shooting that slightly longer draw length and having that string just past the corner of your mouth and then try to shorten your D loop up a little bit so that your anchor position is still where it needs to be. However, the string will be just slightly further back on the face. Um, and then from there, you know, you just have to be a little bit more aware of your facial pressure on the arrow itself. And also, you know, if you are shooting a shorter axle-to-axle bow and that string does have to come further back on your face, then you really need to be careful not to fletch your arrows too far back on the shaft. Some people are starting to move their fletchings further and further back on the arrow shaft, and that's really important that you don't do that because if that fletching starts to contact your face, you're going to run into trouble. So if you look at pictures of me shooting, you're going to find that I often... Um, adjust my fletching length slightly and I always want to make sure that fletching is free of my face. Um, I want it literally right in front of where my face is naturally having slight contact on that string. Don't be afraid of a half inch but again shorten your loop uh, just a little bit so that your uh, overall anchor position can be correct. Um, however the string position will be a little bit further back. Uh, next question here is going to be from Vince McKinnon. Uh, Vince says, Hi, Duds. I'm a huge fan of yours. Um, it's awesome you're into fitness and brings practical information to bow hunters on each show. Um, awesome shot on the last elk. Uh, that must be from the Alberta episode. That was a cool episode. Um, I have a question. I have an Easton Hex 340 spine, uh, which I think you probably mean 330. They don't make a 340. Um, that weighs 380 grains and going 330 feet per second out of my Chris Kyle Bowtech. And I also have a 295 spine Deep 6 HD that are 460 grains flying at 300 feet per second out of the same bow. Um, going on my first big guided hunt in Kansas, which arrow should I hunt with? Do I go with speed or weight? When I crunch the numbers, I get about four more pounds of kinetic energy with that heavier arrow. I'm going to say go heavy, dude. Um, I'm of, you know, 300 feet per second with a 460 grain arrow is pretty stout. Um, you know, I just, I've, I personally will always go with a heavier arrow if I'm still keeping my speed adequate. Um, I'm a huge believer in, uh, I like that 285 to 290 feet per second. Uh, you can shoot more 
broadhead choices, you can shoot more vein configurations and still be able to have success in tuning those when you're staying under the at or under those speeds. Once you start to get over that, a lot of things start to change. And I'm not saying that you can't get them to tune properly. I'm just saying that the likelihood starts to quickly go down. Um, it's no different than you know, you get a drag racer or a, you know, a drag car. The ones that uh, are pretty stable and heavy and and uh, are still fast, but not crazy fast, you know, they stay on the track and they, they go down the middle. But you get the ones where people are trying to put bigger motors in there and lighter cars and start to try to change the aer overall aerodynamics and all of a sudden literally the thing starts squirreling all the way down and you you just run the risk of having the wheels come off so to speak so i would say go with a heavier arrow um i would certainly tell you that uh you know if you wanted to you could almost go up a little bit more and you'll probably be even happier um especially if you're in kansas i assume you're hunting whitetails or muleys or something like that so you're not going to have a drop of problem with either one. Um, you know, I just feel like for the majority of people, if you're really trying to push your bows to that crazy fast speed, uh, I just feel like you're missing uh, a lot faster than if you were to slow things down and be more accurate. That's just my personal opinion. And I've done an incredible amount of testing to back that up so uh let's see here i'm going to jump into another question uh smoky doramus is asking uh, and i hadn't i haven't read any of these yet it's kind of a last minute podcast so i want to know if there's performance issues in modular cams when you have a short draw length so a cam designed is a cam designed to perform better at full rotation? When a short draw archer only rolls a cam three quarters of that rotation, does it? How much of its peak performance is lost? Now that can vary, and it varies a lot depending on the actual engineering behind that cam. You know, one thing that I want to praise um, Hoyt on, and you know, this has been the case for a long, long time, and if any of uh, you target archers out there, um, I'm sure you'll stand behind me on this. Um, Hoyt has always been really good about having cams that stay really efficient at different positions on the module when you compare them to other bows that are doing the same thing. Now, with that aside... I want to say that even on the Hoyt modules, there's certainly been times where you're much better off staying with a cam that's in a longer setting than in the shorter setting if it comes to efficiency. And what I mean by that is, say you're a 28 and a half inch draw and you have the option to either shoot a number two cam in a D or an E position, or you can shoot a number three cam in an A or a B position, you are going to get more speed out of that smaller cam in the bigger position 
or in the longer position than what you would by choking down the bigger cam. Um, that's been pretty consistent across the board. And I know that years ago, um, when I was at Matthews, a big part of why we never had modular cams was because the original solo cams lost so much energy when they went modular and you would take one base cam and try to shorten it two or three inches, it would lose so much efficiency that we actually just had to make individual cams for every single half inch. And what that did was it made sure that our efficiency kind of stayed the same for every single inch that we decreased in draw length. You know, as a rule of thumb, normally an inch of draw length is fairly equivalent to about 8 to 10 feet per second. Because if you lose an inch of power stroke on the string, it's about 8 to 10 feet per second. So, you know, that's why you look at people that, uh, or bows that come out of the box and they're supposed to be a 30 inch bow, but they're drawing almost 31 inches you know, it's going to be seven or eight feet per second faster than another bow model that's truly drawing 30 inches. Or likewise, you know, if a company comes out with a a bow this year and it's got a seven inch brace height and it's shooting 320, well, guess what? If they come up with the same type of bow next year at a six inch brace height, you know, inch less brace height, it's going to shoot 329. I mean, that's just how it's going to be so you know if you're trying to order a bow or if you do have the choice and you're kind of in the middle of those cams i would always recommend the smaller cam in the longer setting Um, and if you can't quite get there you know again you can factor in the basic rule of you know shortening your cables will lengthen your draw or lengthening your string will lengthen your draw Uh, either of those two will increase your poundage as well. So, um, wow, this next one is a long one, and I haven't read it yet, so let's try to get through this. Uh, Tim Marbiter, maybe. Maybe that's how you say it, Marbiter. Um, I seem to not know where my dot or pin is when the shot breaks. Um, It even seems to happen when I hunt and harvest deer. Um... It is an issue to me and in my mind, for I focus only on the target. Um, The shot is rhythmic, flowing, pin goes in the middle. I focus on the center of the target, begin to transfer. Uh, It's kind of a very long uh, shot sequence description here. Um, It is very difficult to get accurate sight tape settings, which I don't use. Um, But with 6 to 10... All right. This got really detailed. I'm going to pass. I'm going to have to save this question for another podcast because uh, there's about six questions in here. I need to separate these suckers and prioritize them so that we can get through there. Um, So... Yeah, I'm just reading through this. It's very tough to know what the heck's going on. Sorry about that, Tim. 
Uh, let's see. Mitchell Vaughn is saying, could you discuss your trigger spring selection in your Carter Simple 1? I recently purchased one, um, and the selections seem to go from too light to, have, to too heavy. So with any of my Carters that I order, and uh, I guess I'll make this announcement too, I've actually got a brand new Carter coming. Um, I hope they're being cut now. Uh, it's a, it's a new, cause I've, I've been a big fan during my competitive years of shooting with two finger releases. I've always really liked a two finger release because I feel like the less, uh, hand you have on the release, the less likely you are to torque that string and also change your hand position or your rocker position on the loop itself while you're holding your release aid. So I've always really found more accuracy with the two finger release. So I've actually got a new um, two finger version of the wise choice coming and fingers crossed. I'm, I should have uh, a limited ditch edition batch of knock on green ones coming, which I hope to have available here pretty soon but what i will tell you is with my releases and i'm pretty sure that i'm going to have them build all these this way i always shoot a heavy cocking spring in my carters i really like that heavier cocking spring um, when you cock it it you have better affirmation of that cock and then when you fire it's a lot less spongy when it fires. It's it's um, it just seems like there's way more confirmation and much more response from that trigger spring firing. So I like a heavy cocking spring. Uh, if you call there and ever order a release, or if you have a release and and want to send it in, Forrest is the man and he knows exactly how I like my releases so you could probably just say I want it like Dudley's and he would know what to do um, but I shoot the heavy cocking spring from there um, you know if it's a simple one you don't have the ability to actually adjust um, the spring tension from the top like you do on the two simple but I'll drop a medium spring in there, I'll cock it, and then what I'll do is I'll actually turn the little set screw that's on the back of the trigger, and I'll turn that very slow until it fires, and once it fires, I'll back it off about a 32nd or a 16th of a turn, and what you'll find is you want to be able to cock it you know, maybe kind of bump the release on your hand, make sure it's not firing. But you want that release to not have travel. That's one of the biggest problems people uh, make that ends up giving them target panic or anticipation on a release aid is they have a release that has travel in it. You know, your mind picks up on that travel and it will quickly start to anticipate how much travel there is before it fires. That's why, you know, when you look at high quality rifle triggers or sharpshooters or professional shooters uh, for rifles, you know, they're shooting triggers that don't necessarily have that travel. Uh, a two stage trigger does have travel, but then once that travels out, then you're pretty much 
confirming that you're on the wall and you're in the place to where then any more pressure is going to cause the release or the gun to fire. Some people that send their guns off to a, a professional gunsmith to get their trigger work done, they really want a trigger to where when they load that, their trigger only fires from pressure and not from movement. Uh, same is true with the good release aid. You know, for me, when I grab different releases off a shelf at a dealer, the ones that you're not paying a premium for are normally the ones that have a whole bunch of travel in there and the trigger moves quite a bit before it fires. Same is true on a caliper release. You know, I love my two shot. Um, my Carter two shot or my quickie if I shoot, um, or even the RX one, um, when I'm shooting a wrist strap release because it doesn't work off travel. It works off pressure. You know, if you have a dual sear, which the two simple does, and that's why I've been, I've been shooting the, the two finger two simple quite a bit. Um, and the new wise choice and the new two finger wise choice will have this as well. But it has a dual sear mechanism to where you can set it to where it fires off pressure and not travel. And that's critical. So uh, heavy cocking spring and medium trigger spring. Cock it and adjust your trigger until it fires and then just barely back it off. Uh, and cock it and see how you like it. That's what you want to do. Um Craig Shelton's asking um, difference in peep locations for shooting an average okay of 25 to 40 yards for 3D versus 70 to 90 meters for target. So this is kind of what I was talking about earlier when I was saying how you know you have to if you're shooting close, you know you're looking up through your peep sight, so you have to kind of bring your face down on that string more so that you can look up through the peep to see your scope when it's way high on your scale. You know, what you want to do is I normally like to set my peep location to where it's the most comfortable and my head's in a straight position when my sight uh, is like right in the middle of my scale. And this is for people that have movable sights. If you have a fixed pin sight housing, this isn't going to really apply as much this is for people that are moving their sight from top to their bottom and shooting uh you know with a movable sight fixture um if you were shooting an average well put it this way when you're asking about 3d versus target you need to decide what is your average or what distance is your preference or most critical to you you know if you're a 3d shooter and you're shooting from 25 to 40 you need to figure out where your average is and get your peep set to where you're most comfortable in the middle of that variance you know 25 to 40 is still a pretty big variance you know if that was the case i would say you know, when your sight's set at about 34, 35 yards is probably where you need to be the most comfortable. I personally have always preferred to be pretty comfortable at the distance that I thought mattered the most. And when it comes to target, you know, when I shot professional field, I always liked my sight to be absolutely the most comfortable or my peep when I was at 40 meters because we shot anywhere from 
15 to 60 meters. So 40 meters for me was one, it was one of the distances that got to be the toughest during the marked rounds. Um, you know, when they would put a 60 centimeter face out there at 40 or 45 meters, that was a pretty dang small dot. And, uh, you know, I really wanted to make sure that I was comfortable and not you know, sm- having to smash my face into that string so that the longer I held, my head naturally started to straighten up. And you'll find that your peep starts to move down on that scope housing. And next thing you know, you're shooting out the bottom. So, you know, that's the best advice I can give you. When I shot Target, I always liked it to be the most comfortable um at 70 meters just because that's where all of our metal matches were shot at you start to struggle a little bit having to really smash your face into that string once you're all the way up to the 30 meter mark when you're shooting your 30 meter rounds um and some of the archers that were really focused on shooting 1400s they would just slightly move their peep sight so that it was more comfortable at that short distance versus the long and you know they just had sights uh sight marks that were set according to where they moved their peep sight in their string during that full 1400 round uh next question here is from robert rankin he's saying uh, i'd like to hear tips and tricks on setting up a blade rest uh, for clearance with a micro diameter shaft i think i covered that actually fairly certain i talked about that um during the last uh, podcast but um, I guess just to touch on it really quick uh, for a micro diameter shaft maybe maybe last time oh yeah so okay I did answer that question in the last podcast I just looked here on my list and uh, for some reason Robert you're at the top of my page and the bottom of my page uh The next question here is going to be from Brian Whitmore, and you're asking about tournament preparation, how to shoot better scores, um, or how to shoot your practice scores in competition. So, you know, this is something that I think different people have to learn to do differently. Um, I was actually listening to a um, one of Joe Rogan's podcasts, and I don't even remember which one it was about. I tend to gravitate towards the ones that um, have philosophy people on there or uh, athletes because there's a lot of parts about competitive athletes that I am fascinated by, and there's certain aspects of my shooting that I feel like I had to go through certain stages during my career in order to be able to achieve certain things. And, you know, I've talked about, I think in the past, you know, I think a big part of any competitor is really two things. One, learning how to lose. And uh, actually, I'll, you know, this is probably a pretty good week to talk about that because. Obviously, in the UFC this past weekend, uh, some huge upsets. And, you know, you look at how, you know, how those 
favored athletes respond during this event versus how favored athletes have responded in past events. And you'll see that there's a huge difference. You know, some, even if you're a top level athlete and you lose, in my opinion, the ones that are able to accept it are the ones that are willing to set goals and do what it takes to make sure that it doesn't happen again. The ones that are ignorant to it and ignore it or deny it, it for me, I've seen that that type of mentality, once they get into a pressure situation again where their back's against the wall, I feel like they sometimes are even, they even come apart more and I assume it's because you know they've applied more pressure on themselves because they just haven't accept, accepted the fact that you know sometimes you have to learn how to lose you have to learn how to win but you have to learn how to lose and I've said it in the past and a big part of who I am as a competitor um, is you know if if you're if you're winning uh you know, be grateful. And if you're losing, be graceful. Um, you know, I'm a super competitive and am I pissed off when I lose? Well, hell yeah, I'm pissed off. Um, however, I'm more pissed at myself. And for me, I had to lose so many times that I was finally sick of it. I just told myself, you know, it got to the point where I was in a pressure situation and I told myself, you know, I'm just going to refuse to lose right here. You know, I'm sick of doing this. I've done it enough times. I feel like I was good at it. I'm ready to move on. Um, you know, I'm ready to move on and, and win. And for some people, they may have to do it that way, depending on your personality I remember specifically because I knew that my personality was that way and that I don't like to lose, I know that I have to be good enough and I know that oftentimes when I started I was not good enough. But, you know, my first 3D tournament, I didn't make it through half of the course before I was out of arrows. Yet, two years later, I was shooting in the pro class. And in a shoot-off in the pro class, shooting against guys like Jeff Hopkins and Larry Weir and Randy Chappell and, you know, uh, Dave Stepp. I mean, it's because for me and my personality, if you really want to perform, then sometimes you have to throw yourself into that fire. And I think a lot of people are not willing to really put themselves in a position to where they may even lose worse. You know, a big part of why I went from losing all my arrows to going straight to the archery shop where the guys that all, all the guys that were on the podium had shirts on that said, you know, Gat Guns or whatever in, in uh, Illinois, you know, the next day I was in that shop. And I was like listening to those guys talk to one another and watching them shoot. And then I was right over in their grill saying, you know, hey, how do I do that? And even though they're like, 
you know, well, kid, you got a long way to go. Well, at least gave me something to work towards. And when I went home, I set those goals for myself. And that's one thing that, that also I think a lot of people fail to do is set proper goals. Um, you know, one thing that I heard one time that I really, really liked was that goals goals are like magnets. You know, they can, they can pull you... Um, towards what you're wanting to achieve but if you don't have them then you're just going to sit stale and you're going to sit stagnant you know if and that's a big part of why some champions that are naturally good and go right to the top some of those people they don't improve until someone else moves up there and bumps them off that and then there's that gut check you know, once someone moves up and maybe bumps them because they weren't ready for it, then that's where that personality comes out of, are they willing to accept the loss, work harder and come back, or are they going to make an excuse and it ends up being something where they lose multiple times and they've completely derailed themselves and they've, they've lost confidence and moved on. You know, I can tell you that for me, when I decided to turn pro part of me knew that I was definitely not good enough yet to do that Um, I shot good scores at home and this is exactly what you're talking about I could shoot good scores when I was by myself shooting at home or shooting on my local range but as soon as I went into a pressure situation I literally felt like I was getting kicked in the throat because I was nervous. But I can tell you that the more you put yourself in that position, the easier that will be. It's no different than, you know, the first time I pulled my bow back after shoulder surgery, it was hard as hell to get my bow back. Or the first time when I go out and throw a backpack on my shoulders and start hiking around, you know, during elk season. The first day is normally pretty tough. Even if you've practiced, it's pretty tough. But the thing is, if you do it one or two or three days, then all of a sudden you adapt. I mean, our bodies are very, very adaptable to elements that we put them in. And I've just found that the more I throw myself in a pressure situation, the easier it is to deal with it. If you want to shoot the same scores at tournaments as what you do at home, then you need to be at tournaments as much as you're at home. You know, a big reason why people, you know, you look at guys like, you know, Jesse Broadwater or, you know, the Wilds or Cousins or Braden Guillantine, um, you know, you look, you look at shooters like, you know, that continually get it done, um, you know, like, Erica Jones did, or Christy Collin, you know, just to name a few of the greats out there. Those people are shooting almost as a profession, as a religion. They're going every single weekend to a tournament. Their tournaments become their practice. Three days of the week, they are 
in official practice with the best shooters in the world around them. Then they're immediately into or, uh, qualification rounds and they're immediately into head-to-heads. And come Sunday, if they get bumped out, they're packing up, they're flying home, and they've got four days until they're heading to the next tournament. You know, if you want to get better in competition, then you have to be there more. And that same philosophy is something that I really want hunters to understand and start to apply as well because... If you're a bow hunter and you're suffering from buck fever or getting nervous as soon as a shot opportunity comes out, then I can guarantee you that if you incorporate some local club shoots or some summertime tournaments or if you're starting to actually go and practice with people that are better than you, you'll find that those moments where those opportunities come out, you're going to be so much more used to being in that position that you're going to deal with it much much better and a lot of people fail there because they just aren't there enough you know the reality is you're going to be nervous the first time you do something you're probably going to be nervous the second time you do something it's no different than you know when we all went out and got our very first jobs you're kind of walking around like you're scared to do this or that but after you've done it a few times you just do it you know, I look at guys that are up here, you know, right here in the town where I live. They have like the one of the main training centers for power pole climbers and and electricians. And you know, these guys on the high lines, you know, I look at them and I'll drive. You know, I see them every day on my way to the gym. I go to the gym and you know, I can tell whenever they start a new class, the first day, you know, or the first week. Those guys are cinched onto those freaking poles. Their legs are clenched on tight. I mean, they look like they're crapping pickles up there. But by the time I ride my bike by there three weeks later, those suckers are running up and down those poles like monkeys because they've put themselves in that element and they're starting to not look down. They're looking up. And if you do that same sort of thing when it comes to wanting to shoot better in a tournament, then set goals that are really higher than what you think is possible and do not give up on them. And set multiple goals. Set realistic ones. Set ones that are slightly out of reach. And surround yourself with people that are better than you. You know, I've always done better as a competitor when the people around me are shooting better than I am. You know, I can honestly tell you that, you know, a month ago uh, when I was here shooting at my house and practicing around, I was shooting okay. You know, I'm shooting, I know I shoot better than the average person, um, but I wasn't shooting at the level that I know that I can when I'm committed. But when I went and started working with the Swiss team, you know, I knew that by the third or fourth day and when I had my students shooting the way that I wanted them to, I knew that I needed to step in and tow the line. And I wanted to tow the line. I wanted to shoot off against these students, you know, people half my age that are definitely the future of archery and who are already champions and and great archers, I wanted to be able to toe the line with them and shoot. And 
heck yeah. When I stepped up to the line the first time and shot with some of these people, I was worried about, you know, losing to a student. Uh, but for me, I like raised my level of archery back to a level that it used to be when I competed because of the fact that I had pressure on me. And, you know, sometimes you have to put yourself in that element and really make yourself be in a fight or flight position enough times to where you're going to start fighting instead of flying. That's going to be my best advice for you. Uh, last question here is going to be from John Schmidt. Uh, John's asking, how is back tension really supposed to feel? I have a, I've been blank bailing a lot. I can squeeze my rhomboids to execute a shot, but it feels like it might be too instantaneous. Should it be long or slow squeeze? Is there an aha moment when it actually all comes together? Or do you slowly realize that the surprise release is working? Um, with the tension activator release, I can sometimes tell if it's back tension or not. Or sometimes I think it's just pulling the release with my arm. So, you know, it's pretty funny when it comes to back tension. There's so many things that come into play here and when it comes to the feeling and the sensation um, this is something that it's hard to write about and describe it's really easy to like explain if someone's there to actually touch it or feel it um, I actually posted a picture today I didn't even really know um, that I was doing this, but, uh, today I posted a picture with me, uh, at full draw and, uh, one of a good buddy of mine from Canada, Dean Thornton actually has his hands on my back and it's from several years ago when I was training, uh, the team in Canada and, or training some guys in Canada and, uh, you know, the back tension thing came up. So I just let people put their hands on my back to actually feel what that motion was. It's a very, very small and specific movement. And one thing that I'll tell you is a big part of why I'm a huge believer in weight training and physical training for archery and why I give that so much credit towards how my professional career went and also my you know my shooting ability now is because that training slowly started to develop a very very keen mind muscle coordination there's very very small muscle groups that some people you know, we'll just simply never feel, you know, it's kind of like, you know, you get someone that's never done, uh, you get someone that's never done calf raises before and you go and put them on a calf raise machine, you have them doing it. They're like, yeah, oh yeah, crap. Yeah. I can feel the burn. Oh yeah. I can really feel that. I can feel that. Well then two days later when they're trying to walk downstairs, then they really know what a calf muscle is, right? 
Um, same is true when it comes to the super small groups that are used for archery. The rhomboids and the small portions and muscle groups in your back, those muscle groups, I've developed a super keen mind-muscle uh, connection with because when I weight train, a lot of my weight training involves very slow negatives. Um, and what I found is, you know, what I mean by that is, you know, for example, if you're doing a push-up, um, you know, pushing it would be the positive. Going back down would be the negative. If you're doing a pull-up, you know, when you're fully extended and pull yourself up, that would be the positive. But if you actually let yourself down slow, but use the muscles that you use to do the pull-up to also hold your resistance as you're slowly extending, that's the negative. And what I found is by doing negatives that are two to three times slower than the positive, you really start to penetrate deeper into that muscle fiber and you also really start to connect that brain into the area that you're using. And, you know, when I lifted weights for years, I was doing it the wrong way because I was so focused on just the positive push or the explosion and not focused on the negative. And I think that's also why during earlier in my career, I did not have near the finesse is what I have now. Once I started weight training with uh, Frank and Arnold back in the you know, 10, 12 years ago, I almost felt like the whole first part of my you know, life as a, as a weight trainer was a waste of time because they showed me how much more efficient and how much more you can actually engage the muscle by focusing specifically on the muscles that you're using and not necessarily the whole movement. So there's a specific group of muscles that you actually have to preload when you come into your full draw position and you come to your anchor you actually contract that small group of rhomboids that's just on the inside of your rear scapula and you have to put a little bit of load into that to where it's almost tight and then once you get onto your trigger you can since it is tight you have a concentration of where that muscle is contracted and from there once you're actually aiming you're slowly continuing to build that muscle group and contract that mass until you add enough pressure to fire that release. You know, if you're blank bail shooting, then what you'll find is, especially with the back tension release or tension activated release, your timing is going to be much, much faster when you're just shooting on that blank bail. If you're actually shooting on a target, that that's going to slow down for a few seconds at least because of the fact that if you're pulling as hard as you will on a blank bail when you're just pulling through, you probably have a lot more movement on that front arm. Now, if you're slow and smooth and continual, you're going to minimize that movement on the front pin all while building that pressure to come back. The main thing is if you're feeling like you're pulling 
with your shoulder or your bicep, then obviously that is what you're pulling with. If you're pulling by maintaining that mass and contraction on the rhomboid itself, then you're certainly going to be doing it the right way. Um, I'm just looking here. I've got, I know I've got an article that I wrote. Let me see if I can uh, find it here. Yep. So I wrote an article. I'll try to post this baby um, for all of you out there. Yep. I found it. So it's actually several. I'm going to have to combine them all. So I've got several articles. I wrote some articles called Back Tension. Um, and it's broken. It's really two parts, part one and part two. Um, and it actually, I've got some, I've got a illustration there showing the muscle group that I'm talking about. So I'm going to put this into JPEG form and I will post that on, um, the, either the John Dudley athlete, uh, Facebook page or the knock on TV Facebook page. And you guys can read through this back tension part one and two. All that I ask is for those of you who plan on ripping off my article, like so many people are doing nowadays, at least give me some bit of a bone and let people know that if they want to know where you stole my article, they could come to a knock on podcast at least that much I would appreciate. Um, otherwise, please do say John Dudley wrote this information. I only say that because there's several people, including old students, that have decided to continue to plagiarize my stuff, which I'm starting to get pissed off about. Um, all right. Well, appreciate it, everybody. I know this was a little bit longer podcast than usual, but I uh, thought I'd get through those questions and get my slate wiped clean so uh actually i know i keep saying it but pretty soon here i plan on having a podcast guest um a few people have called me but honestly when they call me to do them i'm already out doing something for the day i'm an early bird so they've been missing the worm thanks everybody and shoot straight be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock-on lifestyle clothing knockonarchery.com